Hello and welcome to 90% Hits, a podcast about the number one singles throughout the 90s. My name is Danny Yao and with me as usual is Tim Coyle. What's up, fool? <laughs> uh, Casey Atkins. Hello, everyone. And down the line from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. We're not arrogant, we just believe we're the best podcast in the world. Tonight we're talking about another five singles that got to number one in Australia throughout the 90s and we will be wrapping up 1995 and heading into 1996. Uh, let's not delay any longer and get straight into it. The first song that we're going to talk about tonight was number one, four. God, let's count it up. 13 weeks all up, 11 weeks in the end of 1995, two weeks in the start of 1996. It was the highest selling single of 1995 and also the longest chart run at number one throughout the entire 90s. It's a big one, boys. And this is Coolio with Gangster's Paradise. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that Even my mama thinks that my mind is gone But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking Or you and your homies might be lying in chalk I really hate the trip, but I gotta lope as they croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke, fool I'm the kind of G the little homies wanna be like On my knees in the night, saying prayers in the streetlight That was Gangster's Paradise by Coolio, number one for about 14 years in 1996 <laughs> and 1995. Where do we start with this one? Tim Coyle, why don't we start with you? <laughs> for, for the benefit of the listener, the look that Tim just gave Danny then was fairly priceless. Oh. Um. Yeah, well, well, when this came out in 1995 and got to, got to number one, I suppose my f- initial reaction to it, first time of hearing it, hearing it was, this is okay. Uh-huh. And then it was number one for the 14 years that Danny <laughs> just illustrated. And, yeah, I, I grew pretty sick of it pretty quickly. And I think especially going to school where I went to school, which is very white, <laughs> and a, a lot of... A lot of a lot of middle-class white kids taking on uh, gangster rap affectations started to bug me quite a bit, uh, and th- that very much came in in train with this song. So I, I turned off it pretty quickly when this was at the top of the charts and yeah, being there for 13 weeks means that it, it became pretty monotonous pretty quickly. Listening to it this week, it's, um, yeah, I... I I've warmed to it a lot more. Uh, it's, it's very much, this is kind of Coolio's Inferno, if you will. And, yeah, I, I think it's it's okay. It's um, yeah, It's got that Stevie Wonder sample. Um, I, I can't take it entirely seriously mm. um, just because of the baggage that it's accrued. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the some of the observations are, are pretty good. He, his rapping is 
unintentionally hilarious in places, but also good in <laughs> others. And yeah, a, a lot of the, the themes and ideas that go through it, um, such as, you know, this is um, kind of him facing his judgment for for the life he's led, is uh, he pulls that off quite well. So yeah, it kind of earns a tentative thumbs up from me, but as to whether it was worth 13 weeks at number one and the highest selling single of the entire 1990s, which I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe not, uh, maybe not that, but yeah, not too bad. Tim Byron. So, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the weird thing about this song in a lot of ways is that Coolio was called fucking Coolio <laughs> yeah. and he had the <laughs> stupidest fucking hair <laughs> And people took him totally seriously and, like, you know, he was just, you know, selling millions of records and, like, this was taken as a serious song. It wasn't like a um, like a joke because it was deadly serious, basically, about the life that he'd led and all that kind of thing. And, you know, it was just huge. And so back in the day I loved it and I bought the single. Cool. Uh, I bought this. So I um, probably bought the single probably a week or two after it came out. And by the end of the time it had been at number one, I, I remember looking at the single and thinking, I'm never going to listen to this again. <laughs> yeah. Just because it had been at number one for so long and it just seemed like, you know, uh, it had been just like overplayed and overplayed and overplayed. But, I mean, I think for me it was the first time I'd heard rap music that had a message, that had some sort of social thing about it that was inescapable. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, you know, I must, I did definitely hear like stuff like Mr. Wendell by Arrested Development, but I missed that there was a message in that. But, like, the, the fact that there is a message in this song is so omnipresent and, you know, at age 13, which I was when this got to number one, I hadn't heard The Message by Grandmaster Flash, which, you know, is obviously the big influence. And I hadn't really heard like Public Enemy or things like this. So this was the first thing, the first time that I'd heard rap music and I'd heard it in a way that, you know, was where I had the idea that rap music could say anything at all, like that you could use these words to like talk about life. And that was really, I think, probably the way it was for a lot of people. And so I was quite... Um, you know, blown away by it at first, but then just came, became, you know, one of those songs that just keeps hanging around and you can't get rid of. So, yeah. Casey? Uh, yeah. If, if, I guess a similar experience to Tim Coyle where I, oh, man, it just hung around for so long. that I think I actually probably went um, in and out of liking it and not liking it maybe two <laughs> or three times during its run. <laughs> like, it was just mm. there for so long. Um I wasn't a particularly big fan of, of, of rap music. There were a few things that I, I um, did like. Um, was Where was Three Feet High and Rising um, oh, kind of chronologically? That was long before this? Or, okay, so, yeah, um, 89, yeah. And so I really like those kind of hip-hoppy things like this, but in terms of the, the gangster rap, this is certainly the, the first big thing that there was that I was exposed to, and I, and I, I didn't mind it. Um, and then... I got really sick of it and then I found something else in it to like and then I hate it again and then, you know, it was just one of those kind of things. Um, I had a good time listening to it this week though. Um, I I really enjoyed it and it, it really did bring back a lot of memories of that year, you know, because it was just such a part of that year, like it was a quarter of that year. <laughs> that it was, <laughs> it was quite literally the song of the summer. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so I just remember that that context of this song. So it, it brings back quite a lot. So, yeah, back in the day I would have definitely, like I remember this song, it's very clear, it was everywhere, but I didn't really find a deep connection to it. 
I wasn't a gangster. Um, no? Yeah. <laughs> you? You? Surprises as many people as it does. Oh, the Tim um, Coyle and I in the Catholic school <laughs> in Tamworth. Like, yeah. Uh, it's, it's that thing in that Joel Smith book where he tried to become a punk rocker by having one safety pin on yeah. his yeah. Um And... Look, but it was everywhere, and I did have it on a compilation, that Hottest 100 Volume 3 compilation. It was track number two, and I would listen to it all the time because I love that compilation, and it would always come on. But something about it never really hit me, and listening to it this week, yeah, I liked it, but look, the thing that we should just talk about first with this song is really that Stevie Wonder sample because uh, doing this podcast and leading up to it, I was actually thinking, how much of this do I like? That wasn't actually from Stevie Wonder. Yeah, and there's there's a bit, you know, what he says is interesting. I'm not a teenager anymore. It doesn't it connects to me even less now. Yeah. what he's saying, and that culture has kind of died off. Um, but musically, it sounds pretty great. There, he does rap quite well. There's some cool bits in it, but that beat and those strings and stuff. I just, I do love that, and it's Stevie Wonder, like that sample. And I guess if you haven't heard it, it, uh, it is a sample of Pastimes Paradise by Stevie Wonder, which is like track three or four on Songs in the Key of Life. And there are times when, because I have both songs on my iPod and I put it on shuffle all the time, I don't know which song is going to start. Yeah, yeah, it's another um, mm. Ice Ice Baby yeah. to Under Pressure continuum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so how did, did, did any of you guys know that that was a sample when you first Not heard it? No, I certainly not. Yeah, having very much become a fan of Stevie Wonder since, uh, I'd say, yeah, I, I'm very familiar with the song that this is sampled from. And I, I think it's actually a clever sample because... Um, at least thematically in an abstract sense, there's a degree of continuity there because the original song is quite critical of nostalgia and materialism. And mm. I guess that there's a relationship between those. And um, I guess that that critical edge that's in that song was something Coolio was trying to pick up for himself. And yeah, I think he managed that. Yeah, for, for me with um, Pastime Paradise, I think I became aware it was a Stevie Wonder song because maybe Stevie Wonder did it with Coolio at the Grammys, mm. perhaps. Oh, yes. okay. And so I think maybe that I, maybe I saw that and became aware of it then or around then that they were there. And so, um, you know, since 1996, I've become a huge fan of, um, of Stevie Wonder. I probably wasn't in 96, but since then I've become a huge fan. I've got songs in the key of life on vinyl and I've got the close of the century box set, et cetera, et cetera. And honestly, I reckon Gangster's Paradise is better than Pastime Paradise. You know, that thought of passed my mind as well. Pastime Paradise is very sort of an album track and there's not mm. much. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not trying to say too much. I mean, it's it's sort of that ecological sort of, well, not ecological, but, that you know, there's a sort of social consciousness throughout the entire record and talking about yeah. how to live your life. And it's it's definitely a fun thing. But, but, but so, I think much for- of, so much of Gangster's Paradise is from that song. And, but I think what Coolio does on that song is like, there's something in the way that he's arranged, like it's, it's not entirely samples, like what he's done there. Like he's um, re-recorded a whole bunch of stuff, like that sort of choiry thing that he's got going on Gangster's Paradise and the, um, and sort of the sound of it and having the LV, because we, we should remember it's Coolio featuring, featuring LV, LV, who is yes. the, the singer on it. Yeah. Um, good old LV. Uh, <laughs> LV. But yeah, um, he... 
like so, so like he's taken it and like taken it to a slightly different place and he's tried to make it sort of more foreboding and kind of grand and dark than pastime paradise is like pastime paradise is um i feel it's a, still a great song um it, it's just a paradise pastime paradise for me has a sort of um like it, it it doesn't quite have the same sort of sense of grandness and epicness that gangster's paradise has and and it works really well like amping up that stuff for the kinds of stuff he's talking about in the um, in the rap in the lyrics. Yeah. So is LB singing the "Why Can't Tell Me Why"? Uh, in the chorus. We yeah, in the chorus. Yeah, but he's singing. Yeah, but, but, yeah I think. I think oh, that bit. Yeah, yeah. That's I think Tim Byron's right. There's a there's a degree of urgency in this song and about the the moral issues that Coolio is is uh, rapping about that just is not there in Pastime Paradise, at least not to the same degree. There's no real urgency about it. And that's that's the idea of Gangster's Paradise is that this is a desperate situation and um, it's a desperate situation that he is that he is depicting for us. I mean, Gangster's Paradise basically is the wire in song. It is the wire in song, and and when you, I was thinking that this week when I was watching the clip, because I mean, the clip is so is, is all, all the clip that I watched at least is intercut from uh, with um, scenes from Dangerous Minds. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that's the famous one. Yeah, yeah, and um, the kind of look of Dangerous Minds is very much like that. Um, I think it's season four of the Wire where they do the schools. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's very much that kind of look and everything that's going on in the film clip and then cutting into the classroom scenes and everything, it is just, it is the wire. And I, I very much had that thought this week. Even then, the film clip is also unintentionally hilarious on some levels. Like yeah. The younger Coolio looking at the shell of a man that older Coolio becomes. <laughs> it's like <laughs> with, with Michelle, Yeah, with Michelle Pfeiffer just kind of looking on, looking puzzled. But yeah, this. <laughs> I've never seen Dangerous Minds. Is, is this a film that we've seen? Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's I, kind I like of, it, but it's very much of its time. Yeah, yeah. it's one of those like the it. one um, teacher that's um, well, it's Dead Poet Society. Yeah, it's, for the ghetto. Or like Le- <laughs> Lean on Me <laughs> kind of vibe, you know? It's yeah. that that kind of thing. Yeah, mm. no, it's a, it's a decent film, but yeah, it's it, uh, it's dated quite heavily because when we watched the the clip for it. This week, my wife got it into my head that we should watch Dangerous Minds. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, so did you? So is yeah. Coolio yeah. in Dangerous Minds? Um, no, he's not. I think no. he's just performing, isn't he? I don't know. I don't, I've never seen the film, so... You didn't see I, his I, weird I, hair? Like... No, I don't, I don't remember him from Dangerous Minds having watched it this week, but that doesn't mean anything because my mind did wander quite a few times whilst watching it. <laughs> I think the other really important thing to uh, to take away from this song and the, um, the influence that it's had sort of uh, culturally is that um, now a whole bunch of people say Coolio just in, in <laughs> vernacular. <laughs> My mm. wife says it all the time. I, I, I sometimes use the synonym, I'm not even the right word for it, I use the, use the name Coolio Iglesias. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. In various things when I don't want to use my name. Uh, so. <laughs> Our next song tonight, and the second song tonight, was number one for just two weeks in 1996, from the 20th of January 1996. This is Jesus to a Child by George Michael. (laughs) 
at seven minutes long. <laughs> I know, it should have been 12. <laughs> I don't know. I listen to this and I just think, like, the only way it could have possibly got to number one is that the record company bought, like, 10,000 copies of the record. <laughs> and I think, like, I, that's, like, I'm just thinking about it. That must be what happened in, in my head, just because, like, it's too sort of sad and depressing to really get played on, like, adult contemporary radio. And it's, like, it's nowhere near, like, upbeat enough to get played on Today FM or anything like that. It's not rock enough to get played on Triple M. So, like, I can't imagine where anyone would have heard this song apart from Last on Rage. When it was already number one. <laughs> when it was already number one. So I, I reckon the, the record company's promotion strategy was let's buy lots of copies so people know that it exists and see what happens. Uh, that's the only reason I can understand this song getting to number one because it's just <laughs> got that awful nylon string guitar sound. It's got that awful synth string sound. It's long, it's slow, it's boring. It's totally and utterly worthy and it's a, and it's a really lovely put-together song with a terrible arrangement and it's just like, as far as number ones go, it's like, no, no, this isn't a number one. Sorry. <laughs> Casey Atkins. Yeah, I was going to bring up the uh, the guitar thing because um, the, the guitar player from Hazard by Richard Marks gets, uh, gets a third Guernsey. So he was on that Brian Adams song from a couple of weeks ago. And, um, um, Do you reckon he was one of the Gypsy Kings? Yeah. Yeah, man, like, what the Fuck, like, this was the guy who bought us Faith, and now I don't even know. I just, it's just just a boring pile of crap. And other than the, um, other than the guitar thing, which was bad, bad enough, but did anybody notice this week when you listened to it that, um, that reverb, that really huge delayed reverb that happened whenever he hit an S or a T? Did you know, Tim, you're nodding there? Yeah. Wasn't that just crazy? Like, that was bad. Like, I wasn't noticing it, but JD, who has a degree in sound engineering, um, that S was just like driving her insane as I was listening to it today. And then, like, after she pointed it out, I could not hear it. You couldn't hear it or you couldn't hear anything else? I couldn't not hear it. (laughs) Oh, you couldn't not hear it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But, and it's just so kind of meandering and it doesn't have a hook, really. And it's. Um, in terms of back at the uh, in the day, I can't. I do remember it kind of, but no, really, it really did pass me by. It didn't have a certainly didn't have an effect on me at the time, other than telling me to turn the TV off seven minutes early. <laughs> Actually, I, th- I think by mm. this stage, I was probably turning the TV off pretty early in general. But um, but yeah, this one was definitely. If it wasn't off by by then, it is by now. Tim Collar. Uh, this reminds me of an elevator ride yeah. back in 1996. Yeah, this is Muzak, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Just, Do they have elevators yeah. in Tamworth? Yeah. 
<laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was 96 they had them by then. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but, oh, what a snooze fest. Oh, isn't it though? Uh, it's just, uh, the, the, back in 1996, this was still the guy who, as Casey said, this is the guy who, who sang Faith and Freedom 90 and there was still a little bit of, oh, George Michael, this could be good. And then this comes on and you're like, uh, no, uh, this is not good. Uh, just... Such a go-nowhere, flat, uninspired song that, yeah, I mean, I guess his voice is nice. His voice is always nice, but there's nothing to distinguish this. It's just kind of, as Casey said, it meanders along for seven minutes and, um, yeah, uh, I don't think anyone could be captivated enough by anything within it. There are no hooks that they could pay attention to what's going on lyrically. Certainly I wasn't, so I haven't really had that closer, close of a look at it because I just couldn't stand to listen to this any more than once. Danny? Well, I, I bought the go. CD single the day it came out um, and I went and bought... Had um, you heard the song? No. Or, so, right. That's all right. right. Let's <laughs> it. Um, and then I bought Older. Uh, I really liked this song when it came out. Like, I mean, because it was the new George Michael single and I found something to like in it. It was... What was that? <laughs> I'll get to that in a second. It reminded me of another song that I really, really loved. And, um, but yeah, but then I bought Older and, uh, and it's... We'll talk more about George Michael next week, actually. He gets back into the charts. But um, this song in particular, yeah, it was one of those things that really grew on me. It is a strange number one, but I do actually remember it being pretty like played on the radio it was played on lots of um i guess what would now be smooth fm sort of equivalents like 106.5 sort of classic hit stuff and it's you know housewives music and i remember it being in supermarkets and stuff and uh yeah and it was there it was (laughs) i'm not really selling it though (laughs) no but hey i'm not trying to sell it but it was it was definitely just to just for tim byron's point i remember it being a fairly big song um, wasn't, you know, I wasn't really listening to Triple J at this point, so it was pretty big on my, what I listened to. Um, but listening to it this week, yeah, it's just too long. I like yeah. it for about two and a half minutes. I think his voice is fantastic in this and it's a different side of him. Love that little Boston never beat. And also, uh, you know, knowing how much he loves the song and he worked on it for almost five years straight and, Oh, really? Yeah, that was one of the things, like, he played it before he went into that sort of exile away from the rebel company. Like, he didn't do anything for five years. He wrote it before then and kept working on it, and it was about a lover that he had that's very sort of important to him. So that's sort of, knowing that is quite sad. But um, I like it. The song that it reminds me of, and it's weird, and listening to it this week, I remember this so clearly. It reminded me of... Private Universe by Crowded House. No. It has that sort of bossa nova world rhythm beat what? and it's sort of slow and atmospheric. No, 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 no. Private, yeah, Private Universe is in a bossa nova. Private Universe has a bit of dynamism in it. This oh, is no, just there is just that slow feel no. to some of the no. ballads in that record. Hey, look, I mean, this is how I felt at the time. And I still see it. Like, I mean, it's just, um, it has that sort of slightly world rhythm. And, like, it's there's a lot going on in the production, but... 
Yeah, yeah, a really hey. bad string synth sound and a really <laughs> bad nylon string guitar sound and really bad reverb. Well, yeah. and, and then more the other time, actually, thinking about that and thinking about how much I loved both those albums at the same time when I was a kid, um, it actually sounds a bit more like Try Whistling This. You know? I don't like what you're doing here. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> no. Try Whistling This, the actual song is sort of so slow and yeah, but there's something there's something engaging about try whistling this. There's yeah. something about try whistling this that that um, is intriguing and kind of um, haunting. And oh, those it, are it all brings... words I would describe for this song for the first two and a half minutes until it gets boring. See, see, Danny, yeah. I think the thing that you're you're thinking about here is like you've got this thing in front of you, and it's it's quite hard, like, and it's sort of a little mm. bit porous, and it's sort of a bit stale, so it's sort of a bit hard. But when it comes down to it, it's still cheese and not chalk. Okay. Look, <laughs> um, no, look, hey, I really like the song. Look, it's that thing that Tim Coyle said before where there's there's a song in there that, that might have been better and produced better. I think he sings the fuck out of it. Um, but he sings the fuck yeah, out of everything. That's right. It's, like, it's, it's, yeah. it's a given with the George Michael Tim's song. point was really good. Like, of course, he like... It, his voice sounds good. His voice always sounds good. So, therefore, just the idea of him singing it well is not good enough for George Michael. There's got to be a good song there, too. I feel like with this song, like, that it's actually a, a really nice song that would be nice in a production that was much less, um, like, that was much more stark, because it really is a stark song, and it's not a stark production. It's very warm, lush production. And I feel like it would mm. work better in that kind of context without lots of stuff going on around it like it is. But I think um, as a song, like the, th- the thing about it is, as Danny sort of mentioned before, was that he wrote this in like 94 or so um, and it was the first thing that he'd written after a couple of years of um, having writer's block after his uh, Brazilian lover, which is why it's got a bossa nova beat, uh, after his Brazilian lover had passed away from AIDS-related illnesses. And, um, and, so- and he spent some time in that country and stuff like that. And I think he's, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, like, so that's why it's got that sort of bossa nova rhythm that like we... Um, we associate with elevators, but I guess he associates with that kind of stuff. And um, and the Jesus to the child um, sort of imagery is about, obviously, his relationship with that guy. And apparently there was some innuendo about it being sort of about a guy because he hadn't come out at that point. And so there is, like I like I've, I said before, that it was a worthy song. and it, I think it is a worthy song. I think it's just the production of it and the, the way it's executed and the way it ends up sounding just doesn't work in this context. I don't think it's a single. That's That's my issue with it. Yeah. I, I think also going back to to what Danny said with he worked on this and slaved over it for five years and it just reminds me of the Michael Chebon novel, Wonder Boys, yeah, the right. novelist who's just worked at this novel yeah. for, forever and can't end it mm. and, yeah, basically because it's the wrong idea. And, and look, or Chinese democracy. Well. Yeah, he, he, he's, he's democracy. He's yeah, the but, producer as well, so yeah, he but that's, definitely played the way. Yeah, that's this song. It's just he is too close to it, and sure. it was unable to to one end it because it goes on forever. And mm-hmm, definitely, yeah, and it's 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 overworked. It's too important to him. I mean, someone else needed to get their hands on this long before it got to this point. And yeah, part of it, and what Tim Byron is saying about the arrangement with the the bossa nova beat and a lot of the lush strings and guitars, it's too fussy. It's such a fussy 
finicky sound, and it just doesn't suit the content at all. Look, I mean, I guess that's where Together Alone does come in, and it's last time I'll talk about it, but it was just a thing of, it sounded like a normal song, but there's a lot going on, a lot of weird noises and stuff going around it, which is why it reminded me of Together Alone. Like, Together Alone sounded like it should have been produced like Better Be Home Soon, and then there's all those weird drums and, and freaking sounds and stuff on it. And getting to fall in love with that song, getting to fall in love with this song back in 1995-96 was hand-in-hand for me. It was just that thing. You're talking of, about Together Alone, the song? Or oh, sorry, Probably Universe, the right. song. So, yeah. But you're right. He, by this point, and older, the record, and we'll talk more about it next week, I guess, is where he went mad. Like, he had no one controlling him. He broke out of Sony. He was producing his own records. He spent years and years doing it. This is kind of his Chinese democracy. He had no one telling him what to do. The reason this got to number one, really, at the end of the day, was because it was by George Michael. It was a new George Michael single after five, well, like three, four years away from the charts, but first album in six years, yeah. you know, and that's really why I got it. There wasn't a single radio station on the planet that wouldn't play the new George Michael single at that point, you know, and it did, and it got to number one. But, yeah, no reason for this song to be six and a half minutes long or seven minutes long. Someone, if he was working with a producer, would have said, yeah, bring up a couple of more instrumental hooks and cut it in half. Our third song of tonight was number one for five weeks all up, one week from the 3rd of February, and then it came back on the 17th of February for another four weeks. And this is Boombastic by Shaggy. Mr. Boombastic We are some bombastic, romantic, fantastic lover Shaggy Mr. Lover, Lover Mm. I'm Mr. Lover, Lover (laughs) Girl Mr. Lover, Lover Mm. I'm Mr. Lover, Lover She call me Mr. Bombastic Tell me fantastic Touch me on me box She says I'm Mr. Romantic I'm fantastic, touch me not me, but she says I'm Mr. Rose Smooth, just like a silk Soft and cuddly, hug me up like a quilt I'm a lyrical lover Now take me thin or filled with my sexual physique You know me well built, do me, oh my, well, well Can't you tell, I'm just like a turtle crawling out of my shell Girl, you captivate me body, put me under a spell With your couscous perfume, I love your sweet smell You're the young, the young girl who can ring my bell And I can take rejection, so you tell me go to well I'm bombastic, tell me fantastic Touch me on my box, she says I'm Mr. Rose that was Boombastic, uh, number one for five weeks all up in 1996 by Shaggy. Casey Atkins, we haven't started with you. How do you feel about this song? <sighs> <laughs> I fucking hate this guy and I fucking hate this song. I um, I had to listen to this twice today as well because I, um, you know my rule about having to listen to every song at least once, which I've, which I've kept to even in the face of four Brian's Um <laughs> But the first version I found when I was doing, uh, when I was watching it on YouTube today was actually a recut of it, um, like a remix of it where it was mashed with um, Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. <laughs> yeah, Have you seen that? That is actually a more popular version. Right. And so I listened to that and watched that today thinking, shit, I don't remember it being like this. God, I mustn't have... Um, Known Marvin Gaye, like I actually wrote this whole thing to talk about how, like, you know, I must have only 
found out about about Marvin Gaye since uh, hearing this song for the first time, blah, 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 and then I found the real version. I was like, oh, fuck, I have to listen to it again. Um, mm. that, look, was, that was the video version, and so hence it was quite, quite present. Right. No, the video version was just the normal version. Well, no, well, the, the both versions I saw actually had, were the same video. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Someone just played the different audio. Over the, the top. Yeah. Mm. Um, look, anyone who knows me particularly well knows that I, I don't really have a particular soft spot for the reggae beat. <laughs> um, and <laughs> those of you who have been paying attention on the podcast um, know that I don't have a particular soft spot for the, uh, you know, any kind of programmed drum beat. So this was a programmed drum beat to over a reggae song. Hey, what's to like? Although, <laughs> although I did like all that she wants by Acid Bass, so there are exceptions to the rule. Um, but nah, this what a friggin' wanker! Like it was just the, I guess the start. Well, not even the start, but a real kind of continuation and a and a beefing up of this whole misogynistic male bravado crap that I just. Hated then and I hate now and it still exists and I just sort of see him as the originator of it in, in certain ways and nah, sorry. And I was and I remember um, selling copies of Shaggy's songs and albums to awful, awful people <laughs> a number of years later when I worked in a record shop. So, uh, yeah. No. Well, that would have been, uh, it wasn't me, right? Yeah. And we don't been. get to talk about that song. Um Good. But, yeah, that was, <laughs> oh, God. Do you want to go next then, Jenny? Yeah, look, I mean, the only thing about Shaggy that is of any worth is Ali G. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't me going to cops. Did anyone ever come up to you and say, it wasn't me? Uh, and, like, what Ali G was trying to be is essentially the people who bought freaking Shaggy. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah, I hate this guy. He's got nothing. It, it is a bit dick in the box in terms of that, yeah, baby, I'm, I'm just the best lover ever. And yeah, everything that you want is right here in my pants. Um, it's shit. It's there's like he has that voice. Like it's so annoying that fucking voice. And it's just, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very little redeeming for me about this song. I hate it then. Uh, I hate it now. Except, I guess the good thing is that I don't think anyone likes it now. And you know, oh, I would like to think you would probably be surprised. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think I there's think more right. new shit music to like, but yeah, it's yeah, kind true. of just. Uh, and this song in particular, I think, is not fondly remembered, maybe because of it wasn't me, <laughs> fills any shaggy nostalgia that anyone might have, but uh, yeah, he's a douche in the highest order. <laughs> Kim Coyle. Oh man, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a novelty song. This is why it gets to number one. I mean, he's got the he's got the funny voice, and I mean, I say funny provisionally. I, I, I know that Shaggy is meant to be humorous, but it's not actually comedy. It's silliness, and some people might laugh at it. But there is no comedic value. It's 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 footy show humor, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> which is not humor. No, it's 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 it's, it's comedy for people without a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. So there's that aspect to it. Um, and yeah, apologies to all the footy show watchers who are listening to (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Look, I've got this, I've got this theory that, you know, after kind of historically, after a monarch has a long reign, the next two monarchs are going to be shit. (laughs) And that's what happens here. Like the next two singles after Gangster's Paradise, you've got George Michael's seven minute meandering 
piece of crap. Mm-hmm. You know, that's James one, and then you got this. This is Charles the <laughs> first, and it needs its head cut off because you know, God, it's fucking awful. <laughs> nice, Tim Byron didn't mind it. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I think at the time. I don't remember being a fan of it really at the time. Like I'd moved on to other stuff by now. Probably if it came out a year before that, I think I would have liked it. Uh, but by, by the time of sort of early 96, I wasn't into this kind of thing. Um, listening to it now, like this week, I was actually sort of surprised to discover that it wasn't that bad. It was my reaction to it. This may have been because I listened to it straight after Jesus to a fucking child. <laughs> and, and so compared to that, it sounded really kind of, you know, like full of life and kind of fun and stuff. But I think the, the I, I was listening to it and just like interested in the backing, in the backing music, in the beat behind it. Cause it's not really reggae. It doesn't have that reggae kind of dun, 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 dun. It's got this sort of oh. weird kind of thing with the, with that piano note that goes dun, 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 dun. And well, stuff like that. Like to me, like that kind of stuff um, is, is quite interesting, and I like the kind of groove of it, which isn't really reggae. It's just sort of some weird thing that probably the Neptunes ended up would have you know would have put out like ten years after that. It's got that kind of interesting rhythm to me. And Shaggy as a vocalist, like I'm sort of fascinated by how stupid his voice is. Like he, he's oh, just yeah. kind of like I, I, there's this bit in in the song where he's like where he we really like brings out what's called vocal fry where he like where he's like romantic and, mm. and like it's really fascinating that he would even do that in a song like that that he would think to like to make his voice sound stupid like that and so like I, I don't know I listen to it and I kind of think it's a um, it's it's interesting in, in a way that he's um, He's sort of the exploring the stupidity of his vocal style in this song, and I kind of, like, give him props for that. Yeah, I think this goes back to what I'm saying about the purported humour of this song, is that there is something fascinatingly stupid about it all. Like, how the fuck can one song get so stupid? <laughs> but I'm not sure it's a novelty single at all because this is what Shaggy does. This is a standard album track for Shaggy. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's what he does, but his whole shtick is novelty. Yeah, so I guess that's why that. people buy yeah. this. Stuff. Yeah, so he's, he's a novelty artist, really. Yeah, I guess because haha, he's got a funny voice. Yeah, you know. I mean, I'm sure he's it, putting on the voice, like because there's the um, there's a song called Mr. Lover Man, which I listened to today by Shabba Ranks which came out in 92 or so and was a reasonably big hit. Um, we, and Shabba Ranks has exactly the same voice as Shaggy. Uh-huh. Like, and Shaggy's obviously, like, you know, taking off this song to some extent and putting a different beat underneath it, more or less, because, you know, the mm. song is called Mr. Lover Man as opposed uh, to Mr. Lover Lover. Mis- Mr. Lover Lover. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the thing with the stupid voices, I, I immediately think of Kruger in Seinfeld. It's like, funny voices? That's what we're doing now? <laughs> that is my response. This is what we're doing now? Yeah. Like the lowest form of comedy of any creative kind of pursuit is funny voices, and that's what this song is. It's Says just- the man who always does the crusty impressions. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, back to Casey's point about the misogyny. Yes, back the to misogynist fucking, oh, fucking doucheness on it. Like, I mean, I was, I guess that's the thing, by... At this time, I was old enough to realise that this song was, kind of, not, I'm not going to use the word offensive, but just kind of shitty in that way. Yeah. And I've never really liked that sort of stuff, and I've, I've never gravitated towards it. And, like, yeah, when I was, like, three, four years earlier, I liked Big Butts. I thought it was quite funny. Yeah. And it's actually probably not a bad, 
comparison yeah. as a song. But yeah, by I guess just by you know, and Tim Byron is a bit younger than us, maybe he feels different. But yeah, just by an accident of age, uh, I was listening to much different stuff by then, and much more complex and and thoughtful things by now. And this was just not anything that I care about. Yeah, complex and thoughtful. The, the video, the video clip reinforces that. And uh, I think the thing is, all of you rushing out to watch that video clip on YouTube right now <laughs> is that yeah, it looks so tame by today's standards. You know what? The thing about that video clip watching it this week, it's. It hasn't dated. No, it yeah, looks like so many other yeah. film clips. I mean, today. yeah, some of the, some of the fashion choices are more conservative <laughs> than, than current film clips, and that's that's the worrying thing yeah. about it. But it's still very sleazy. There's still you know lots of midriffs and short shorts and clothes that are barely there, and female silhouettes grinding on sundry items. And yeah, it's, it's working as it were. Yeah, it's it's the template for. Just the unholy yeah, yeah. reign of shit amongst videos that has proceeded. In I the think last... it's been quite influential. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can I make a literary reference in the way that I'll, I'll play the Tim Coyle role in this in this discussion? Um, just there's a there's a great book called um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls about the seventies New Hollywood scene uh, by a guy called Peter Biskin, and he makes a point at the end of the book after talking about Lucas and Scorsese and all those sort of amazing people that we are the children of Lucas. Like, <laughs> as much as you had all these great films challenging all these ideas like The Godfather and stuff, no one gives a fuck about The Godfather's movies. We just want the next spectacle of Star Wars and superhero films, and this is what we've become. And maybe culture is, it's, we're not the children of, you know, great, interesting songs like Bohemian Rhapsody. We're the children of Shaggy. <laughs> <laughs> we really are. Well, that, now, music. that brings up another thing about the children of Shaggy. I think there are quite a few who, if they said they were the children of Shaggy, he would say, no, it wasn't me. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> Our fourth song of tonight was number one for just one week uh, in 1996, and this is Wonderwall by Oasis. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you By now you should have somehow realized what you gotta do I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now Backbeat, the word is on the street that the fire in your heart is out You've heard it all before But you never really had a doubt I don't believe that anybody Feels the way I do About you now And all the roads we have to walk Are winding And all the lights that lead us there Are blinding There are many things that I Uh, that was Wonderwall by Oasis, number one for one week from the 10th of February 1996. And an interesting fact about this song getting number one, it was also the same week that the album, Lots of Story Morning Glory, got to number one. Uh, one of the few cases in uh, Australian chart history where uh, both album and single got to number one at the same time on the same week, 
for one week. So that's pretty interesting. But yeah, Oasis, where do we start? Look, I might start this one because we haven't had a chance to do it. I loved this song back in the day. This mm-hmm. was, and for a wider thing, I'm sure we'll get into it, this was getting into the heart of what I would love about music for the next couple of years. It was my discovery of Britpop that probably happened just before this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of, you know, it was definitely because of Blur that I discovered Britpop. And Oasis was, and this is around the time I was buying Key Magazine. I was, you know, just devouring this culture. And I loved all the singles that preceded Oasis. And there was something about, I don't know how they marketed this time, but when Wonder War came out, everything by Oasis was available, like all the singles and stuff like that. And I remember buying all the CD singles, the HMD. And I loved that song back in the day. And then a couple of years later, I would be listening to Oasis and I didn't like the song that much. Right. It wasn't the best Oasis song. It was so soppy and romantic and I wanted Oasis just to rock and be that band that was so great to listen to in a stadium with 20,000 of your closest friends. And um, and they continued to write really good songs, but obviously the band's star faded in, in many, many ways. Listening to it this week, that feeling only got worse. It just kind of felt like... Right. And it's interesting because I put it on, it's on my iPod and obviously and I found it and listened to it and all I wanted to do was listen to almost any other track on What's the Story, Morning Glory. Right. And maybe sort of enjoy the album and maybe listening to that album back in the day made this song fit in and make sense. But I never really, you know, this song was a number one song. It was a big song, but never really had that life for me. I didn't hear it around on radio and just sort of get into it. I loved the album and this was part of it. Out of context, yeah, it felt a bit weird and trying to talk about just this song tonight. Yeah, it's not the highlight of the album. It's a really, really soppy love song and there's all that strings and stuff like that. And, yeah, it's a fine song by a really, really good band back in the day at their peak, but there are better Oasis songs. Tim Coyle, what about you? Yeah, I loved it. Um, so with Oasis, the first Oasis song I heard on the radio was Whatever, which I think, mm. yeah, was the single preceding this or at least... Yeah, it was a it was a non album single yeah, that came out in between single. never came out yeah. in between definitely maybe and morning and morning glory and I think morning glory was the single that immediately preceded okay. this one yeah so yeah I heard whatever I went out and bought definitely maybe straight away and yeah this was a band I'd gotten excited about in a way I hadn't for for quite a while and as Danny said the Britpop thing was starting to to get very big and I was fascinated by that and very much into it because it was something that belonged to me in the way that it didn't to other people in my year at school or other people around me at school, people who listened to grunge and stuff, which had kind of passed me by, whereas this was music for me and um, that I had a degree of ownership over. So, yeah, I kind of cheered this song on as it got to number one. Um, I still think it's a really fine piece of songcraft, but what Danny's saying about the, the cultural ubiquity of this song has just sucked the life and the meaning out of it, I think that still it, that holds true for me a bit, just that... Um, Whatever is there in this song, whatever virtues it has, and there are many, uh, I do actually think it's a very good song, but I'm much more detached from it now. But whatever virtues there are about it, it's just that, um, you know, I was so invested in it at the time that, yeah, I think at some point I just cashed out. Yeah. It couldn't re- it couldn't return on mm. what I put into it anymore. And, it, yeah, listening yeah. to it this week, good. 
still a very good song um, and, yeah, still very much a part of my life from this time. But, yeah, it doesn't do anything for me on an emotional level and, anymore. And I'm sure it wasn't a song that faded from your memory in any way. No, right? no of course not. Tim Byron, what about you? Well, put it this way, when I was, um, when this was a, it's still in the top 10, um, two singles I'd bought at the time were Disco 2000 by Pulp mm. and Charmless Man by Blur, right. which I think says about what side of the Blur Oasis divide I was on, <laughs> um, because, and we'll get to that. But um, yeah, Wonderwall, um, to me, yeah, like Danny, this, was, this wasn't my favourite Oasis song by any means, and it was kind of, I just sort of felt it was a bit drab. Like, I never really kind of got into this one quite the same way I got into Whatever or, like, Don't Look Back in Anger, both of which I like much more than this. And I still kind of feel the same way. Like, it's it's a nice enough song, um, but, like, it never really did that much for me. It would, never was a single that I felt like buying on, on CD, um, and I... Eventually, you know, got what's the story, Morning Glory on CD, but it's yeah, it's a bit yeah for me. So um, I sort of share Danny's opinions about that. There, listening to it now, um, I still sort of feel the same way. But the thing about the song that kind of does get me a bit is just Liam's voice when he sings um, the words "all" and "wall" in Wonderwall. Like when he sings um, "After All," like the sound of his voice on "all" is just like kind of gets me. Like there's something about the sound of his voice as he sings that and the way it kind of rises through the mix. That, in, in, a, in a good way? Yeah, in a good way. That, like, right. yeah, that gets yeah, me that I, I listen to it and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, and so I get I get why it's so beloved and why Triple J recently voted it the, you know, the top album, the last the top song of the last 15 years or whatever. But um, <laughs> it's, all, it's all right and I get that. But, like, I've obviously got the same um, ambiguous feelings towards it as Tim Coyle and Danny. Casey? Yeah, I love this song a lot. And I think um, Whatever was the first Oasis song that I heard and that was that was played to death on Triple J. And I think Triple J was well and truly in Tamworth at this stage and I was excited about the next Oasis single and, and this lived up to it for, for what I was, you know, wanting. Now, I'm surprised that it was only at number one for one week because I remember the clip really, really clearly and I remember seeing it a lot. And was this one of the ones that hung around up the top for a yeah. long time? Oh, yeah, or? it really did. Yeah. I mean, it came out in 95. Right, okay, yeah. But it was the third thing <clears throat> in the album. Okay, so I um, I absolutely loved it. And my favourite thing that about it that still gets me to this day is the um, when the drums come in the second verse. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's, yeah. That, yeah, really that great. is fantastic. The drums come in in the second bar or sort of, you know, on beat four of the first bar as the fill starts and... It's just one of those things that any time I have heard that since, and it happens from time to time, and it pro- and it surely wasn't the first time it's ever been done, but it was the first time I noticed it, and any time it happens since, my brain goes, oh, they're doing the Wonderwall thing. That, really, that happens. And it's really shown in the film clip, like when the film clip comes along, you see a bit of Alan and he starts hitting the drums and he yeah. does that feel, and yeah. it's really, really great. And I think, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's brilliant. That sticks to me. Uh, sticks with me to this day um and and so yeah i absolutely definitely loved it um i never need to hear it again <laughs> you know that's like and i did i listened to it today and i watched the clip and everything but i i just do not need to hear this song again and it, and it's exactly like you danny whenever i hear it i just go oh what other oasis song from this period could I be listening to instead of this? Um, and 
you know, it's just one of those things where everybody, I mean, uh, I'm sure we'll have cut this out by now, but um, both Tim Byron and I have picked up a guitar and played the chords to this <laughs> um, in the last half hour. Um, everybody knows it. Every cover band played it. A lot of cover bands still play, play it. I played it in a couple of bands. It's just one of those bloody songs that I just never need to hear again. And it's like, it's it's kind of like, you know, like The Weight or Hallelujah or California Stars, like, Songs that are actually really great. It's been but ruined. I just, I just, not even ruined so much, but I just never need oh. to hear it again. Yeah, you know? I agree. I agree. And I kind of agree with all your other song picks there as well. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and like, Oasis as a whole, like, I actually listen to Oasis relatively um, regularly. I'll just get in a mood. But if I get in a mood, I'll put on Definitely Maybe. Before we get into how we feel about Oasis as a whole, I actually have a very particular question about Oasis I want to know about everyone, which is, when did you give up on Oasis? Uh, I'll be here now. Yeah, when, do you know what I mean, was released mm. as a single. Yeah, I was right. just like, man, that sucks. That was yeah. only like about 18 months ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, that was kind of um, odd in a way because I, I was so into them and I'm so invested in their fortunes and yeah. then it happened. Um, Tim Byron, what about you? Yeah, for me, I mean, I don't think I ever sort of like, like was into Oasis enough to say I gave up on them. Like I liked them okay, but there was other stuff I liked more at the time because I was into the grunge that you guys didn't quite get into quite as much seemingly. So, but yeah, like, you know, do you know what I mean? I remember listening to that and thinking, it's like Jesus to a child is long and boring. Um, Yeah. But, you know, I like some. Better than Jesus to a child. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, there's more coke in it, certainly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, that's I don't know. You could have a challenge. Who's taking more coke, George Michael or Liam Gallagher? That's a very, very close one. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think for me, Oasis, like, I never got into them enough to sort of feel like I got out of them. And so, you know, songs like um, Stop Stop Tearing Your Heart Out, Stop Crying Your Heart Out, whatever Crying it's called. Out, yeah. Crying Your Heart Out and Lila and things like that. I've liked, you know, probably about as much as I liked Wonderwall because I never was that into them in the first place. I never gave up on them. I know. And this is a conversation. We, we talk, we've talked a couple of times, and Danny, I think you brought up this um, a book that I think we've all read that I first got from oh, you yes. called um, Lost in Music by Giles Smith. And, and um, if you ever see it, listeners, just, just pick it up and, like, just buy it and read it, um, which he talks about the idea of loyalty buying. And we've all got an artist that we will just – always buy their records no matter how long ago they jumped the shark and turned to mm-hmm. shit. And Danny, yours has been Oasis. Um, mine's Weezer. Yeah. And, you know, and we've kind of all got one, you know. Smashing Pumpkins. You still buy the records? I, I haven't bought the last one. I did buy Zeitgeist, though. Yeah. I have every Oasis DVD, best of compilation, every single Still, mm. uh, to some degree, maybe we'll miss the last few. Um, and I saw their last ever UK gig when I lived there. Oh wow! Um, and it was it was great. Uh, and it was kind of emotional because it was I I actually felt myself giving up on the band when I went and saw it. Uh, but it was, but then that album that they put out, uh, "Dig Out Your Soul," was so terrible. And Noel Gallagher maybe wrote five songs of the thirteen on there. Mm-hmm. That's and not a good sign. <laughs> no, it was not a good sign. <laughs> this is terrible. This is like buying a current Temptations album when no original members are left. And um, 
And I remember rocking up to Wembley and just going, oh, it's going to be terrible. And they just played those songs. And yeah. it was just great. And they're, they're much like Weezer or probably Smashing Pumpkins and some of that, where they still have to play seven or eight songs from their big albums every time they play because that's really what people want to see and they kind of know it, yeah. even though they don't want to admit it. Uh, and it was great. I, it was They played basically Lila uh, and a couple of other singles from the later albums and then... 20 songs from this classic period. Yeah, but almost like an inverse of Wonderwall is I can never hear something like Live Forever enough. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I hear that, it's, it is it is still quite electric for me. And yeah, that, that's the thing with, I guess, the cultural ubiquity of a song like Wonderwall because it's been everywhere for so long. It loses all resonance that it has, whereas Live Forever, Live Forever is still such a personal response to a song for me that that remains. So it's, it's kind of odd in that well, way. I, I want one more question about this classic period as well, mm. which is, uh, you know, Desert Island, definitely maybe, or what's the story, Morning Glory? Uh, definitely maybe. Tim Byron? The Besser Blur. <laughs> <laughs> this song was number one for four weeks from the 16th of March, 1996. And this is One of Us by Joan Osborne. It's an odd one. It is, one. isn't it? It's a real odd one because it, it starts off, it's got the, the a cappella Appalachian. Um, oh, the old sort of gospel yeah, thing going on. Folky yeah. gospel thing. And yeah. <clears throat> that's probably the best thing about this whole song, <laughs> to be honest. But uh, the guitars kick in, and to be honest, that guitar tone is really great. It's great. Yeah, it's an amazing guitar tone. I think as a song, it's as a song. It is well written. Um, the, the chorus is good. The, mm. the guitar sounds are fantastic. And then there's the lyrics. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then there's Lord. And <laughs> kind of thing. It, um, oh, God. What a, and you can't separate them. For me, that's the, that's the problem. Yeah. And, yeah, just what a steaming pile of... <laughs> Um, Osborne. <laughs> it's yeah, just such a terrible lyrical conceit, and um, yeah, the, 
the odd thing is I, I went around, hunted around the internet looking for snark on this song today because I thought I would find reams of it. Nothing but praise. I know. <laughs> it was odd. But, yeah, I, I think this is just such a... This song really needs to be torn to pieces by someone because, the, the as I say, the lyrical conceit is just so laboured and uh, so... Ernest, no one's ever indicated to me that this was done in an ironic way. The interviews with her certainly don't show that was the case. The guy who wrote the song doesn't indicate that it was done ironically. And, yeah, there's just something um, really, really, that really, really rubs me up the wrong way about this. And, yeah, the lyrics completely demolish what could have been a really good song. The thing I I was thinking listening to this this week was this is like the fifth song in a row that's had some sort of mention of religious-y kind of stuff. So first we've got Gangster's Paradise, which starts from a quotation from the Bible, the walk through the shadow of the valley of death. Then we have Jesus to a child. Shaggy thanks Yah for his sexual physique. (laughs) And and Oasis has a whole thing about wanting to be saved. Like, you know, maybe you'll be the one who'll save me. And now this with um, God is one of us. So, like, something in the water in early 96 in Australia, we wanted, like, religious stuff in the charts, goddammit. <laughs> some, some of those are slightly, you know, like, labouring the point slightly, perhaps. That was, that was Shaggy in particular. <laughs> yeah, a bit tenuous, but, um, yeah. But Wonder Wall was the Wailing Wall. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I found this sort of a bit boring and whiny at the time. I don't think I was incredibly into it. Like, I felt it was a bit sort of mid-tempo plodding. I... Guitar tone is nice and stuff, but yeah, it sort of felt a bit plodding to me. And I felt like it's the kind of lyrics that has been written within an inch of its life to to sound kind of vaguely controversial, but not actually offend anybody. It's it's all the what ifs in the in the lyrics and all the kind of um, you know maybe and like you know it's it's all just like you know I'm just kind of vaguely suggesting the possibility of this stuff. Don't get <laughs> upset, American Christians. It's got that sort of feel to it, and um, it's finally balanced in that kind of way. And it probably has to be to get to get a song in the charts in the US that has some vague reference to God in it. It probably has to be boring and insipid, and it is. Prince's version's better. Um, it is an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hi, Brian from yeah. Family Guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's one of those things that, getting back to the kind of coil continuum of, um, <laughs> there is there is a really good song in there somewhere. Like, and and where the hell is it? Like, there there could have there. I think the hook is great. I actually think the chorus is really really good. Um, but. I just can't believe, and maybe it's what you're saying, Tim Byron, about that it's trying so hard not to offend, but I can't believe that they couldn't try a little bit harder on those words. Like, I don't even mind the concept in, like, in terms of, like, I don't even, I don't mind that. I don't think it's something that, shouldn't be said. I think it's actually an okay thought, you know, but it's just um, executed so badly in the lyrics that, like, I, I again, like, why couldn't they, 
what's with all those fucking yes? Like, <laughs> yes. This is like, yes. oh, it's, it's so hippie ish. Like, and yeah. the yes really yeah. 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 God is good. Yeah. God is good. I was wondering whether that was meant to be ironic. Like, like you know, the oh. yeah, yeah of, um, you know, of Seinfeld. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> every, 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 everything I read indicates they were serious. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but and, <laughs> I just can't, and that's what I can't reconcile because I just, I think you're right. The just produced beautifully. I think she delivers it vocally really, really nicely. Uh, um, guitar, ta- guitar sounds are uh, great. It's really. I read something today about it being a sort of Neil Young guitar tone, and it was and it is, yeah, and I enough. think this was a really good call. And but what the? Even if you're going to write a, a crappy, gaudy song, you can do better than that lyrically, Danny. Back in the day, I have a clear memory of listening to this song and thinking, this is a stupid song. <laughs> and that is my real memory about it. What you guys are talking about in terms of the production, the melody and how it's put together and, and guitar sounds, whatever, I just can't get out of my head that I just, I didn't hate it, mm. but I was old enough to just sort of go, this is a stupid song. Like this, this thing that she's saying is just kind of stupid. Like this can have it. Like she's asking these questions and just, it's just stupid. <laughs> Like, what if God was like, you know, didn't resolve it in any way? It was just kind of stupid. It was pandering and it was all that sort of stuff. So uh, I definitely felt that at the time. And listening to to it now, I kind of maybe softened my sort of it's just bloody stupid view <laughs> of it. But it's not a very good song in that sense. And, yes, there's maybe a nice melody in there. But, I don't know, I think there's, there's a lot of nicer melodies with terrible lyrics out there as well. It doesn't really sort of save this yeah. song in any way. It, it's, I think the issue, yeah, there's lots of great songs which have terrible lyrics, but... Well, if, they, if, if, if we go back to the Oasis yeah. conversation... No, but, but the thing is, like, Noel, Gallagher, Noel Gallagher doesn't tend to pitch his lyrics at trying to make some kind of theological or philosophical point. Yeah. And the self-regard in this song is what just shits me. You know what? I, I, I disagree because I don't think anyone's really trying to make a very definite point. No. This is, this is KC about Soul Asylum. This is all an accident. They had one idea about <laughs> what if God was one of us. Oh, they just played that fucking metaphor and just a stranger on a bus and they just played it to death. That was the only thought they had going to write this song and you can tell. So, yeah. Yeah. Tim Coyle, what do you mean yeah. by self-regard? When you say there's a self-regard in this song, like, where do you get that from? Well, basically that they're taking on a big concept and they're taking on a big concept because they feel they're capable of doing it. You wouldn't write a song like this if you didn't feel as though you had a definite message to convey, a definite theological or philosophical message to convey about the concept of what if God was one of us. And, yeah, that's... Wouldn't you? I can imagine just going, oh, I never thought about that, and I wonder what if, and just, like, leave it at that, like, in that way that and songwriters that, sometimes do. And I kind of remember from the time kind of having that thought, and and that's why I almost back up the concept of it not being a, a bad, you know, thesis, as it were. But, but, see, I kind of agree with Tim Coyle, is that if, if you're going to, like, in that basic terms of you're going to try and make the point, they totally fail in making any point. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's the thing. It's it's they had this grand concept which basically came down to about nineteen words in the lyric, 
Mm. And they just fuck it up. There's nothing there. There's nothing to it. There's yeah. no substance. Well, th- that's the thing. They wear it out and the conceit is reduced to nobody calling on the phone except maybe the Pope. Maybe yeah, the yeah, exactly. Right. So that's the thing. It's just vacillating crazy, between what could be a really interesting concept yeah. and just this most facile uh, of insights. And it's terribly exciting. Yeah, that's kind of where I get the self-regard from. You're, go- you're going for something that's meant to be enlightening and profound and you uh, you cannot actually bring the goods. It's not insightful, like you said. Like, there's no insight in this song whatsoever. To me, I think the thing with the song is, like, especially with the lack of insight, and I suspect probably why it, why it struck a chord amongst some people, despite the lack of insight, is that basically when it comes down to it, no one knows anything about anything in religion. You know, like, in, in terms of religion, <laughs> no one's got any idea about, like, this kind of stuff. Everybody's making it up, let's face it. Except yeah. you there, listener. Yeah. You <laughs> know exactly. Yeah. I mean, by de- yes, by definition, that is an issue. Yeah, and, and, so, and so the thing is, like, by definition, you know, maybe God is one of us, maybe not, who knows? And but, I think, like, the, I guess, the I thing that the be- song is getting at but, for people is, like, it's just that kind of thing of, you know, no one really knows and maybe that's okay because no one's ever going to know. That, that's, well, what, that's what I feel like the song is actually getting towards a, people it, compared to what they think it was that they were trying to do. I think like there's the what they were trying to do and there's the what actually came out to people who were listening in terms of the signal and receiver kind of semiotics mm-hmm. kind of thing. Well, it's meant to be this arresting image or concept. And to be fair, it, talking about things like catechism or the Talmud, uh, in the Judeo-Christian um, heritage, and I probably had the most religious upbringing out of anyone here. So, um, but look, th- this concept <coughs> of um, the stra- God is the stranger to you—that how you treat right. the stranger—is um, kind of indicative. Of, like the whole thing, how you treat the least of my brothers, mm. Um, mm. Yeah. as you do unto the least of my brothers, you do unto me. Uh, kind of thing. And yeah, that's kind of the, possibly, I think that's the, the, the concept they're trying to convey here. But I, I think play- that's giving them too much credit. Yeah, exactly. They missed that mark terribly because yeah, we're, we're down to making poke jokes. Yeah. But, but to Tim Byron's point, it would be a very, very different song if, like, if they did say, Definitely God is one of us. Definitely God is on a bus. Definitely trying to make his way home. I'm definitely sure about that one. Like, it's it's so open-ended to the point where, yes, there's no substance, but on Tim Byron's point, completely open to interpretation. Yeah. And I think, like, with with a song about religion, any song about religion which wants to have any sort of success at all has to have, like, totally open interpretations that people can use in their own kind of way, I guess, yeah. probably. The thing with this song was I read a quote by Eric Bazilian, who wrote the song, um, who was basically saying he wrote the song in about an hour to impress a girl. Yeah, I, I read that quote. Yeah, too, and, but there was the getting back to the self-regard. Like getting back to the self-regard, if you go to the end of... That particular interview, uh, after I had finished writing it, I had already started composing the Grammy acceptance speech I should have gotten. Yes, I, I read that too. <laughs> but the, uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up about this, so we've got one, is it only one Weird Al we've got in this week? Weird with, Al. Yeah, with, with Amish Paradise. Is that all well, we've got yes. this week? Okay. Um, 
So there's this other thing that was going around at the time, which was, or there were a few kind of weird Al alikes happening mm. at the time. And there's, there's one quite worthy one that was happening at the time. Um, that was Bob Rivers, Twisted Tunes, mm. who did, um, who did win one on, on this. And it was, it's really funny. And it's on YouTube. I'll put it on the, the blog, but it's the, what if God smoked cannabis? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's wrap this up for tonight. Ah, uh, we, as usual, we'll go around the table and see what everyone's favourite song is from the five that we talked about tonight. Just to recap, we spoke about Coolio with Gangster's Paradise, George Michael with Jesus to a Child, Shaggy with Bombastic, Oasis with Wonderwall, and Joan Osborne with One of Us. Tim Byron, what's your choice? I find this a really hard week to choose like a really hard week, because the things I like about the songs are all very different. Mm. And so part of me actually kind of wants to choose Bombastic because, like, I, I don't, I'm not going to choose Joan Osborne and I'm not going to choose um, George Michael. And Coolio is kind of like it's been done and Wonderwall it's kind of been done. So this week, I, actually, maybe, yeah, I'm going to choose Bombastic simply because <laughs> of the other songs that I like, they've just been done and I have no emotional attachment to them. Whereas Boombastic listening for me, listening to it this week was kind of, yeah, that's interesting. I haven't heard that for a while. So yeah, Boombastic. We will be putting Tim Byron's address on the blog. (laughs) (laughs) Casey Atkins. Oh, it's gotta be Wonderwall, you know? Yeah, it's Wonderwall. It's Wonderwall for me as well. If, if you could chop Jesus to a child down to about, 90 seconds that would be great but he didn't so Tim Kyle yeah it's a, it's an odd week because I think as Tim Byron says the, the best two songs of the week I no longer have any emotional attachment to and yeah, yeah so I've got to look at it in this detached way Wonderwall is the best song out of the five yeah well, so I guess Wonderwall wins. So there you go. Again. Yet again, <laughs> it wins yet another thing. <laughs> that would have I been tried. I tried not to pick Wonderwall. Okay. Look, we, um, next week we will be back with uh, Choose Your Own Adventure Show, where we yeah, will each choose. Yeah, uh, a song that we love from the top 100 charting singles of 1995 to discuss. Uh, but until then, Casey, do you want to let people know where they can find us on the web? Yeah, of course. Um, so please uh, seek us out and find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, find us on Tumblr, or you can email us 90%hits at gmail.com. Um, so we're 90% hits with percent spelled out in words in all instances. Tim Byron, tell us about what goes on on the blog. On the Tumblr, uh, it's mostly Tim and Coyle and I, and we'll post like a song a day at least. Uh, or we'll post the songs that we talked about and we'll write a little bit more about how we feel about them and things like that. We'll also post other songs by the artists. So we'll post like, whatever the follow-up to, to One of Us by Joan Osborne was. We'll post things like I don't think it happened. <laughs> 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 and we'll post things like, um, you know, the, the, cool, the Weird Al Yankovic uh, Amish Paradise and things like that and sort of just talk about things a bit more. We'll post, like, reviews of the number twos of the week. And, um, yeah, it's fun and you should read them because um, it's more of the same of the podcast, really. And please, if you can, uh, leave us a message on the blog or on iTunes. We do read every message that comes along. It's quite funny. We enjoy it. And, you know, reply to us on Twitter and stuff. Uh, But also leave a rating for us on iTunes. It really helps us sort of come up in search results. And... Also, this week we actually fixed up a couple of things and you can actually get every episode 
from episode one on iTunes as well, if you've been asking us how to do that. They're all available, so just go into your app and, and uh, search for them. So that's all we have for tonight. And if you have any information on what happened to Mary, uh, please let us know. And until next week, goodbye. Can you get me one?